and welcome to New Books in Secularism. I'm your host, Annie Sipukaya. New Books in Secularism is one of the many channels in the New Books Network, a volunteer-driven project where we interview authors about their new books in different fields. This gives listeners the opportunity to learn about new books and new ideas from the authors themselves, and will hopefully make everyone dash to the bookstore to get a copy of these great books. Today, I am going to talk to Raphael Letaster, author of There Was No Jesus, There Is No God, a scholarly examination of the scientific, historical, and philosophical evidence and arguments for monotheism. With a background in pharmacy, medicine, and finance, Raphael Letaster is a professionally secular PhD researcher at the University of Sydney. His main research interests include the philosophy and sociology of religion, Christian origins, logic, and the justifications and social impacts of atheism. Raphael wrote his master's thesis on Jesus' mythicism, concluding that historical and Bayesian reasoning justifies a skeptical attitude towards the historical Jesus. For his doctoral work, Raphael is analyzing the major philosophical arguments for God's existence and attempts to demonstrate the logical impossibility of the monotheistic concept. He also explores the theological tendencies of the philosophy of religion and considers the plausibility of pantheistic worldviews. Good morning, Raphael. Good morning. We are talking to you today about your book, There Was No Jesus, There Is No God. To begin with, could you tell us a little bit about your background and why you decided to write this book? Sure. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Now, um, my background is very much in science. I was training to become a doctor, decided I didn't want to go down that path, tore up my medical school offer and decided to become a scholar instead. And I ended up studying for my master's thesis. I uh, decided to tackle a very controversial issue. Very recently, especially with the rise of the internet, a lot of people have been questioning whether Jesus Christ or Jesus of Nazareth actually existed as a historical person. Of course, most secular biblical scholars already reject notions of the biblical Jesus, but they generally hold that there was a historical historical person behind it all. And I thought, well, that's interesting to actually do my master thesis on that topic and find out, um, or, or find out to some extent if it's plausible or not plausible that there actually was a, uh, a historical Jesus. And uh, that led to the master's thesis, which was well received, and then this book. So you you just said that um, most biblical scholars actually agree that there was no biblical Jesus. No, the opposite. Most biblical scholars uh, assume that there that there was indeed a biblical Jesus. Uh, sorry, a historical Jesus. They they reject the idea of the biblical Jesus, the Christ of faith. So, oh, they do. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry about that. Yeah. They reject the idea of uh, the Jesus Christ that was, say, raised from the dead that performed miracles. That is generally rejected by at least secular biblical scholars. I think we can't even say most biblical scholars because most biblical scholars are Christian. <laughs> they believe personally in these things, so it's very hard for them to argue against it. But most secular biblical right. scholars. Uh, of course, reject the notion, but they still hold that there was a historical Jesus, and very few scholars reject that. 
Oh, okay. Um, you actually defer in your book between um, two different types of Jesuses. Uh, you say there's the historical and the biblical Jesus. So what is yeah. the difference between those two? Yeah. So basically we've got the biblical Jesus. That's the, that's the fellow that did miracles, that is divine, that was raised from the dead. Then we've also got theories about the historical Jesus, which is a pretty ins insignificant fellow. In fact, that's the only way you can explain the lack of evidence is that this person was really insignificant and that uh, it, it, are the it is the exaggerations that came later on that uh, attach significance to this person. And we've also got this idea of the purely mythical Jesus, a celestial or heavenly Jesus, which is... Uh, what I get to with the section on Paul's writings on the epistles and also discussions of Philo of Alexandria and what he says about a similar figure called the Logos figure. So, um, and that are just two or three main categories of Jesus. Underneath that, there are a lot more types of Jesuses. You of course have uh, the Catholic Jesus, the Jehovah's Witness Jesus, you've got the, uh, from the historical Jesus, you've got Jesus the Apoc Apocalyptic Prophet, for example. There are so many different theories, but the main groupings would be, yes, you've got this Christ of faith that secular scholars reject, you've got the historical Jesus that most secular scholars actually do accept, and you've got this purely mythical, celestial, heavenly Jesus that uh, a few scholars are now saying that's probably what happened, that there were, there were some, some early Christians that believed in that sort of Jesus, and that's obviously not a historical character. So there are people that believe that there was a heavenly Jesus, but that he never came down to earth? Like, is this a religious belief, or is it like a belief that, that Jesus didn't exist, that he was a myth in, in in itself. Yeah, a bit of both. There were early Christian mm. groups, and this I find quite fascinating and quite damning, actually, to the idea of Jesus' historical existence, is the fact that there were early Christians, arguably the earliest Christians, that did not see Jesus in the way that the Gospels see Jesus, as a man on earth at a, at a particular time. Even the epistles of Paul don't really put Jesus at a specific place, at a specific time. But there are arguably, arguably Christians around Paul's time or even earlier that believe in a Jesus that indeed was not on earth at all, that, uh, that only existed in, uh, in heaven or in other spiritual realms between earth and heaven, that, uh, or, or that maybe there was a Jesus on earth, but it wasn't really a human being, it was just a phantom. There were such groups, and um, the question is, were these the first groups and the question also would be if they weren't the first why would they believe in that way why would people that love Jesus make up such nonsense about Jesus and deny that Jesus actually existed as a human being on earth it, it beggars belief right right one of the things that you talk about in your book is the criteria of authenticity yeah could you tell us what that is and why it's useless in terms of trying to prove Jesus's existence yeah yeah the criteria as used by many biblical scholars is uh, is pretty bad useless as you say in general um, some of them, even most of them, could pass off as rational, particularly the ones that are actually quite redundant when you do historical studies, such as uh, the criterion of you know, natural possibility, for example. But uh, the, bulk, the bulk of the criteria used by many biblical scholars and Christian apologists are very speculative, and they really don't tell us much about Jesus at all. They're basically used to try and find out 
what claims made about Jesus in the Bible are true. You know, what is it that Jesus actually said and actually did? So they're trying to authenticate aspects of Jesus' life. Now, as I said, the, the main ones anyway are very speculative. One is the criterion of embarrassment, similar to the criterion of uh, dissimilarity or double dissimilarity, which basically says that if a claim made about Jesus or a story about Jesus that you find in the Bible would be embarrassing to the author or is dissimilar to the views of early Jews and Christians, then it's probably true. Because why would this author make something like that up? Why would they make up counterintuitive claims? Now, this is highly speculative for a number of reasons. First of all, how do we know what early Christians and early Jews would find embarrassing? There, there were that many different groups of early Christians, and also we know there were many different, and still today, many different groupings of Jews, how can we possibly know that they would actually find X or Y or Z to be embarrassing or to be dissimilar to their views? Secondly, there's a problem that since these are the people formulating this new religion, it's, it's really bizarre to claim that their views are dissimilar to their views. I mean, this is where Christianity stems from. Their views are what forms Christianity. So it's really bizarre to say that their views are different to the views of early Christians when these are the early Christians. <laughs> right. Also, there's, there's good reason to make stuff up that's counterintuitive as well, just to give the... Uh, the, um, the, the illusion of authenticity, I suppose. If, if they constantly make stuff up that just portrays Jesus as perfectly good and just all fits perfectly well together, people might get suspicious. So if they throw in something here and there that is a bit more realistic, then people might be more receptive to it. So there's plenty of reasons to, um, to deny a lot of power to such such a speculative criterion. And there are other criteria as well that are very, very speculative, uh, even contradictory and complementary in the sense that they can validate every word that the Bible says. One, for example, is the criterion of, um, of, of vividness, which says that if something is spoken of in, in the Bible in great detail, it's probably true. I'm thinking, well, okay, so fiction... Fiction then is true, right? Because fiction is generally very vivid. And then there's also the criterion of least distinctiveness, which says, well, that's probably true too, because it's like an offhanded remark with hardly any detail. So basically, they complement each other. If something is said with a lot of detail and something is said with hardly any detail at all, it's all true. And that's, of course, a really bizarre way of, of doing history. So it, it's never falsifiable. Yeah. It's similar to the relationship between the criteria of Aramaic context and Greek context. I mean, since the entire New Testament was written in, uh, in, in Greek with Aramaic portions as well, then again, you're, you're, um, you're verifying the, the entire Bible. What kind of issues arise from the fact that the biblical Christ and the historical Christ come from the same source? Yeah, this is, a, this is a massive problem. This is maybe the biggest reason that I, I found to doubt the historical Jesus is the fact that they come from the same sources. We don't just have sources here that take an already established historical Jesus and make exaggerated claims and make claims that are obviously mythical, like this person raised people from the dead, was raised from the dead himself, turned water into wine, walked on water, all that sort of stuff that to most of us is just obviously mythical. The problem is with Jesus is that that's all we have. 
We don't have earlier sources of a purely secular account of Jesus, of just a normal man that lived a normal life. And then later we see, oh, there are these other sources that start making exaggerated claims. We don't have those purely secular sources for Jesus. We uh, arguably do later on in the record, but they're, of course, very late and um, and uh, they were uh, influenced by the gospel stories. It just so happens to be that the earlier stories we have about Jesus, they portray Jesus in a uh, in a mythical in a mythical manner. There is, if you take all that away, there is no truly secular historical remnant, and uh, I think that's a big problem because essentially the scholars, in trying to formulate their idea of the historical Jesus, they're basically just using the biblical Jesus and taking out all the bits that they don't like. Again, that doesn't strike me as being um, particularly good objective historical research. Hmm. So why do you think it is such a widespread belief that even if the biblical Jesus did not exist, Mm -hmm. the historical one still does? Because I've I've heard a lot of people say that, even atheists say, well, obviously Jesus was not the son of God, but he he did exist and he was a nice guy who who did um, good things. And um, I've always kind of wondered, well, how do you know that? But <laughs> Exactly, yeah. That is a very big question for a number of reasons. One issue that I definitely would like to clarify is that it doesn't bother me. I mean, I am an atheist. I'm professionally secular in my work, and I think that's a good thing. But it doesn't bother me. It wouldn't bother me at all if there was indeed a historical Jesus. I mean, I think that's generally a good thing. We'd like a lot of a lot of nice people with long hair and you know, preaching peace. That's a good thing. We shouldn't necessarily want it to be the case that there was no historical Jesus. But it is a good historical question to ask whether there was one. And atheism certainly doesn't rely on the notion that there was no Jesus. But looking at the uh, the issue of whether Jesus existed or not, it's very difficult to do that within uh, even academia because most people that become experts in this field, such as biblical scholars or Christian philosophers of religion, they, or philosophers of religion, they generally are believers. I mean, why would an atheist dedicate their whole life to, say, studying the biblical languages? Every now and then you do get one that does it just out of interest, but the vast majority of people that do so actually are believers. So you end up having these academic fields that should be objective. You end up having these fields that are very much dominated by the Christian faith, and that would include biblical biblical studies, uh, New Testament studies, and uh, even philosophy of religion, although philosophy in general is quite a secular field. Philosophy of religion is very theistic, very Christian-friendly. Now, that puts those people who actually are not believers in these fields in an uncomfortable position. They have every motive to argue for the historicity of Jesus, even if they argue against the, uh, the idea of the biblical Jesus. They have every reason, in, or, in, in order to preserve their jobs, they have every reason to argue for the historicity of Jesus, even if the case is, is quite poor. So, yeah, it's a, maybe a controversial contention. I'm not the only one to say it. Hector Avalos has uh, written a whole book about it. And... Um, it seems basically to be uh, to be reasonable that even the secular people within these fields would uh, want to believe in a historical Jesus just to keep their keep their jobs intact to keep them relevant. Have you found it difficult writing this book and publishing it? That you know, being in in the field that you are. Certainly, in many ways, I think I've committed career suicide. Um, I spoke about this to some extent on a, a little 
SA for the Religious Studies Project website, where um, even starting the project, even starting this master's thesis was a big, was a big challenge. I, even though I'm in um, studies in religion, which is the secular look at religion rather than, say, theology or even biblical studies, which is a bit more uh, obviously theological friendly, uh, even though I'm in the secular field, I still faced a lot of opposition and Basically, all I said is I wanted to look into the question of the historicity of Jesus. I didn't even say, and of course I shouldn't say, I shouldn't know yet, what my conclusion would be, whether Jesus existed or not. And even even then, I faced a lot of opposition. I got people pulling me aside saying, look, you can't just say Jesus didn't exist. And that wasn't the intention at all from the beginning. So it, it was a challenge. And even during... During the thesis, um, even though I got to start, there were still challenges that came up. Um, you know, maybe uh, supervisors or advisors that really weren't all that helpful, didn't want me to continue with the with the program, didn't want to have any any involvement with it anymore, etc. I faced a lot of challenges. It was quite uncomfortable, but uh, in the end, I think it was definitely worth it because this is the first time, at least in modern times, that a world-class university has accepted a thesis that is sympathetic to the idea that Jesus didn't exist. Now, I'm not arguing that Jesus didn't exist, or even arguing that that's really plausible, although I kind of say that in one of the appendices, but my main argument is that it's not crazy to ask the question. Let's at least acknowledge it's a good question, and that there is something to it, and let's look at it, look at it uh, in a bit more detail. Wow. Wow, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> I didn't think it would be that big a deal, especially at secular universities. Yeah, that is a real shame. Yeah. Wow. Um, why is it important that the Pauline epistles were written before the Gospels? Yeah, this is a, a really important uh, issue for the main Jesus mythicist idea, the main idea. The main theory out there that Jesus didn't exist as a historical person, that Jesus instead was a celestial figure that over time um, came to be seen as a historical figure. Now, it's really important because Paul's epistles, they really don't say anything at all about the historical Jesus or the Jesus of the Gospels. In fact, they contradict in many ways, the Jesus of the Gospels. And wherever Paul has the opportunity to use Jesus' authority, uh, he doesn't. <laughs> and when he uses what seems to be Jesus' teachings, he doesn't claim them to be Jesus' teachings. He just says them as if they're his own teachings. And so, okay, that's really weird. Why would he do that? And there's really odd bits about Paul's epistles as well, like saying that, um, uh, wondering, for instance, why why the Jews Jews wouldn't believe uh, due to say a death of miracles while in the Gospels we actually have Jesus performing miracles. There are these real oddities in Paul's writings or even the epistles in general that really suggest well maybe maybe there was no historical Jesus. Maybe Paul's actually uh, the originator of the Christian idea of this idea of Jesus Christ, and therefore it becomes very important that Paul's actually the earliest Christian author. Before Paul, there's nothing. It's all, it, it all starts with Paul. So it's very easy to see, especially as Paul seems to be describing only a heavenly figure that gives him information through revelations and visions, that, that Paul's Christ is the initial Christ and that the gospel version uh, comes later, which it does in the historical record, um, and is ex um, exaggerating the claims a bit, putting Jesus in a historical setting, etc. So it's very important 
to the Jesmithist idea that Paul is uh, the earliest author, and it raises a lot of problems for people that think there indeed was a historical Jesus. If we look at the if we look at Paul's writings without being influenced by the Gospels, which we have to acknowledge were written later, then we see a very different image of Jesus, an image of Jesus that uh, in all likelihood did not exist as a historical fleshly human person on planet Earth at uh, you know, around the first century. So it, uh, wow. it's and very important. And there's no mention of Jesus at all before Paul? Um, before Paul, no, not as Jesus. I mean, we have we have the Logos, which is later associated with Jesus directly with the, in the Gospel of John. We've got uh, this. This alludes to another crucial issue and something that does support the Jesus mythicist idea is that around the time of Paul, or actually a few years before Paul, we've got the writings of Philo of Alexandria. Now, this is a uh, a, a a Jewish historian, a Jewish scholar, who comes up with the idea of the Logos. Now, this is a spiritual character. It sounds very much like the Christ of Paul's writings. It's just a little less obvious that it's Jesus, but it sounds very much like Christ. There's a lot of similarities there, such that it's a divine figure, it's a spiritual figure, it uh, has a relationship uh, with, with God, it seems to be a mediator with humankind and God, uh, even in some aspects a sacrificial and salvific figure, not necessarily that uh, died and resurrected, although you, know, you maybe can tease that out of certain certain sayings about the Logos figure. But uh, there is even a case where the name Jesus is used indirectly and associated with the Logos figure in Philo's writings. Philo references um, Zechariah, I think, chapter 6 of the Old Testament and associates this figure that he's talking about in Zechariah chapter 6, he associates that with his own Logos figure. Now, in the context of Zechariah chapter 6, that figure is associated with the name Joshua. And of course, as many of us know, Joshua is the same name as Jesus. And if you actually use the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, instead of Joshua, it, it says Jesus. And that is likely the version of the Old Testament that Philo would have been using, being an Alexandrian Jew. So... Paul is definitely the earliest writer on Jesus Christ per se, but it could very well be that to some extent the, uh, that is a, um, an elaboration of an earlier concept, the Logos figure by Philo, and that of course also is quite damning to the idea of a historical Jesus. In terms of uh, the Jesus story starting as a mythical story and then becoming more historical over time, mm -hmm. um, why is that damning? And, um, and how does that play into the mythical hero archetype? Yeah, well, the traditional view of Jesus is... Well, that's, that's, that's difficult. There are two, two traditional ways of viewing uh, the Jesus story, or well, the main one from the historical standpoint would be that there actually was a historical person called Jesus, and then over time, this theory became exaggerated, this idea became exaggerated, uh, this person did exist, but suddenly all these ridiculous claims were made about him, such as the walking on water and being raised from the dead. That's the traditional 
historical Jesus view. But you know, seeing this this evolution of the story, when you put the sources in order and you start looking at people like Philo as well, and even earlier sources that indicate mythological figures that also have something to do with Jesus uh, or, or um, similar aspects with the Jesus story, then you definitely see, well, instead of starting off with a historical figure that has become exaggerated over time and mythicized over time, we seem to start off with a purely mythical figure that has been historicized over time. That over time, people such as the gospel authors started to to provide uh, fictional historical details. And even when you extrapolate to the present day, then you get modern secular biblical scholars who take out um, take out a lot of the mythical stuff and just make it purely historical Jesus. That's the pattern we see. We we start off with a mythical Jesus. We don't start off with a historical Jesus. That's as if, um, at least when we look at the sources. And as I said, if you extrapolate backwards as well, beyond even Philo, you see a lot of, uh, a lot of information there about uh, pagan figures, pagan gods, etc., and, uh, and characters that have a lot in common with Jesus, such as um, mysterious, mysterious goings-on, uh, deaths and resurrections and saving mankind and all these sorts of issues that are so important to the Jesus story. We definitely see these motifs in earlier religions and mythologies. Not, not exactly. Not, it's not exactly the same. A common um, apologetic objection would be, oh, it's not exactly the same as the Jesus story. Well, you wouldn't expect it to be. It would be the exact same religion if it was exactly the same. It's obviously going to be a different. There's always going to be cultural influences and, uh, and people's imagination runs, run, runs wild as well. So they're always going to be differences. What is important is that there are big similarities. There's a lot about the Jesus story that we've already seen before in religions and mytholo- mythology centuries and millennia older. You actually do say that you don't need a historical Jesus in order to explain the rise of Christianity. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's definitely true. Again, it's another uh, apologetic remark to say that you need the resurrection to happen. Otherwise, how do you explain the rise of Christianity? That's complete nonsense. I mean, there are there are other religions as well that have uh, been very successful besides Christianity or other faiths, I should say. And yet the Christian doesn't believe all the miraculous claims of those other religions. So it, it's a really silly thing to say. But uh, it is indeed the case that the one thing you don't need for Christianity to happen is the actual the actual gospel story, because if the gospels start appearing around 70 CE um, and Jesus lived around 0 to 30 or what minus 4 to 30, then it really it, it's quite obvious that what you don't need is the actual life of Jesus. What you need is the gospel story. And, and all the claims made about Jesus. And that seems to be really appearing around the 60s and 70s in the Common Era. And Christianity didn't even really take off then. I mean, if you believe what the Gospels say, it seems to be the case. But if you look at history, it's only really a couple of hundred years later that Christianity really takes off, becomes the, the official religion of the Roman Empire, etc. So it's absolutely not the case at all that you need to have a uh, either the biblical or the historical Jesus to explain the uh, the beginnings and the rise of Christianity. That's not the case at all. Hmm. Part two of your book uh, focuses on the existence of God as opposed to the existence of Jesus. Yeah. Um, that part is a little bit shorter than part one. Mm-hmm. So basically, did you find any evidence for God? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, 
Sorry to disappoint anyone out there, but no, the uh, the evidence for God is uh, is pretty poor. Now, yes, you're exactly right. The second part of the book is uh, is a fair bit shorter for two reasons. One is that I actually argued that evidence for God is actually pretty irrelevant because it's not enough to know that some sort of God exists out there. We are dealing with religions. We are dealing with people that try and push their specific religious views. It's not enough to say, well, yeah, they they might all believe in some sort of God. They believe in a specific God. They believe in the specific truth of their religion, and that's what needs to be justified. And when it comes to Christianity, such claims, such arguments generally revolve around Jesus, so I end up saying, well, the first section was obviously more important, because we're looking at the evidence for Jesus, not only the historical Jesus, but also the biblical Jesus, which is obviously much more important. And we, we, we pretty much ruled all that out. Sources were bad. The methods are bad. There's no reason to accept that Jesus uh, was divine, was raised from the dead, etc., uh, or even existed at all. So for that reason, the second section did not have to be so big. But another reason is, is that I'm uh, I'm looking into those arguments in a lot more detail right now in my uh, academic research, and I will have a follow-up book that pretty much discusses all, all this in, in much greater detail. And that's uh, that's a massive project that's going going very well. But in general, the evidence for, for Jesus uh, and, and for God in general is very poor. I outlined three basic ways you can try and prove God's existence. You can go through the scientific route, the historical route, or the philosophical route. Now, the scientific route already fails. It's the best way to prove God's existence. It's probably the only way, as I argue, but it hasn't been done. Yeah, we after 10,000 years or so, we still don't have any direct empirical proof of uh, the existence of any particular God. So you throw science out the window and you look at history and philosophy. Now, history doesn't work either because history is a shock and horror, not the study of what happened. History is a study of what probably happened. Given that miraculous and supernatural claims are inherently implausible, and I defend that position in my book and in my ongoing academic research, um, history is actually opposed to uh, to such religious claims because history is all about what's more probable, while the supernatural miraculous claims are actually about what's what's less likely, what's uh, what's uh, less probable. So it. It's not uh, it's not particularly helpful to try and make a historical case for the truth of, of uh, any one religion either. So that leaves philosophy, and this is uh, this has become quite big in recent times. I uh, discussed it in one of my articles, um, which you can look at online. Um, I discussed it as the uh, the phenomenon of the new theologians. You've now got these apologists like William Lane Craig. Richard Swinburne, etc., that are actually rationalizing Christianity. They're coming up with with serious philosophical arguments. It's not just the old fire and brimstone stuff, you better believe or else. It's, wow, we've got all this evidence here, we've got all this reasoning to show that some sort of God must indeed exist. And I go through such arguments like the cosmological argument, fine-tuning argument, moral argument, etc., and show basically um, why they fail whether they have uh, committed some sort of logical fallacy or whether the premises are, are, are outright false or unproven. There's a lot of problems with these arguments. And at the end of the day, there's also that issue, even if such a, some sort of God was proven, you need the evidence for a particular God or for a particular region's view of God, and that is, is solely lacking. So basically, it all fails. There is no good evidence for God. That's not to say that God doesn't exist. That's not to say that you shouldn't, shouldn't be religious. I mean, there's a lot of different ways you can be religious. 
I'm not anti-religion or even anti-Christian, but when it comes to the evidence, no, there is no good evidence for God or for the truth of the Christian religion or, or perhaps any other religion that makes such, uh, such big claims to truth. In fact, you, you talk about some of these arguments as kind of, they, they try to, to prove the existence of God, but they kind of assume that God exists to begin with. Yeah, that's very interesting, this whole uh, concept of presuppositionalism. Uh, it's evident in, in basically everything these new theologians do. I mean, they, uh, they're, they're, they're much more sophisticated than the typical believer, but they still start off with that base of assuming that God exists, and they're still biased in, in their research in, uh, in accepting ideas that are compatible with their beliefs, and rejecting ideas that are not. Instead of just uh, looking at the claims and objectively trying to figure out what's true and what isn't, they actually just try and uh, you know, pick and choose what suits what suits them. So that is a that is a big big problem. I find it to be the case with a, a number of a number of the arguments, for instance, by William Lane Craig. Uh, it's quite obvious with the Jesus argument, for example, the way that Craig justifies Jesus's resurrection is that God did it. He says, you know, obviously resurrections don't just happen, but if God did it, <laughs> but since the resurrection of Jesus' argument is trying to establish that God exists, it seems a bit ridiculous to assume that God exists and assume that God did it in, in the first place. Obviously, uh, a lot of people might say, oh, but he's already proven that God exists with the philosophical arguments. Well, no, he hasn't. They all, they all fail. And there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of that circular reasoning going on in the other arguments as well. Sometimes it feels when debating with um, with the religious or the faithful that the burden of proof is on us <laughs> to disprove God. Sure. Do you feel that often? Yeah. Yeah, that's a very common tactic. Uh, William Lane Craig does a lot. By the way, I'm mentioning Craig quite a bit because he is the subject or the main subject of my PhD thesis. I take him as the exemplar of this new theism, these philosophical Christians. Um, so I, I talk about him quite a lot. But yeah, that's a very very common charge that it's the atheist that has to justify um, th their view, which is ridiculous because atheism is not really a defined view. But it's also very, um, very unscholarly to do that. I mean, uh, the, these people should be focusing on trying to prove their arguments true, not saying, oh, here's this group that I don't like, and I'm going to show that my view is better than their view. That's not exactly how honest uh, serious, objective academic research is done. They should be focusing on their view, and and of course that entails that they hold the burden of proof. Uh, until an atheist actually makes a big claim, uh, they don't need to to have bear the burden of proof. And of course, even if an atheist does that, that doesn't affect me, that doesn't affect you. I mean, we're not one big group that are committed to the same ideas. The whole concept is ridiculous. Right. Yeah. So if people are interested in finding or buying your book, um, where should they go? Is it on Amazon? Is it easy to find? Yeah, they should uh, go onto my website, rafaelmatasta.com or pantheismunites.org. There's links there to the book. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it on Kindle. It's, uh, it's on top of the Kindle charts for the categories of religious philosophy and atheism, so it should be quite easy to find there. 
Um, yeah, and it's actually quite affordable as well. One of the reasons I wrote the book and published it in this manner rather than going through the traditional scholarly routes is to keep the book accessible and affordable. To, to write a book that the general public can actually understand because a lot of philosophical work is very technical, very inaccessible, yeah. and also very expensive. I, I was looking at a book that I wanted to get the other day, and it costs $170. And you look at my book, wow. which I think is a better book, and it costs two ninety nine dollars <laughs> on Kindle. And, uh, That's certainly more affordable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's a book that the yeah. general public can access, they can understand it, they can buy it for the price of a cup of coffee. Um, so it's very accessible, and that, I'm, quite, I'm quite proud of that because a lot of scholars tend to – tend to keep within the scholarly confines. I, uh, I want to get involved with the public and help educate the public on, uh, on what's good reasoning and what isn't. Fantastic. Rafael, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Sure. It, uh, it has been my pleasure. Thank you very much for the opportunity. You have been listening to an interview with Rafael Letaster, author of There Was No Jesus, There Is No God a scholarly examination of the scientific, historical, and philosophical evidence and arguments for monotheism. This is your host, Annie Sipukaya. Thank you for listening to New Books in Secularism.